Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 71. Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 71. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's hear it. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming when it was day, The council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes. I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Let's pray. Lord God, we lament that you, Jesus, were treated in this way by ungodly men. We ask, Lord, your forgiveness of our corporate sin and the fact that we identify as men, as men and women. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to think long upon the things that we observe here, to learn, to inwardly digest, to read, to meditate on the Word of God, and to be encouraged in following the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I ask you this morning, have you ever endured a situation where you were unjustly treated? A situation where you were unjustly unjustly treated, where you endured the accusations of other persons and you realized that it really didn't make sense to respond. Maybe you had that attitude where you felt, you know, this person I'm interacting with is no longer hearing me and no longer listening to me. And even though I I make a protest in, in support of my position, the fact is that, that, that they have already predetermined the outcome. They have already come to an understanding and a judgment concerning uh, their, their judgment. Uh, concerning the question of my impropriety and or uh, whether or not I have in fact done something wrong or sinful, harmful. There have been a few instances in my life where it, it made more sense to not say anything. Maybe there have been circumstances like that for you when someone accused you of something and and in fact you decided after interacting for a little while that they were no longer, they were not hearing you. They had predetermined their own understanding of the facts and they had already come to a conclusion and nothing about what you say would in fact be believed. Jesus has come to that conclusion because he has already, they have already demonstrated that reality in the earlier chapters of Luke's gospel. They have been coming uh, to him with a series of questions time after time after time. And he has responded to those questions carefully, teaching uh, uh, explicitly, uh, sharing patiently with them, and then asking subsequent follow-up questions with them 
uh, to which they have not replied. They have often gone away without an answer because if they answered in this way, it would undermine them with the people. If they answered in this way, it would undermine them with God. And so Jesus is in the midst of being examined by them. And of course, I would hope that you see right before we even begin the impropriety of what they're doing. I believe this passage is given to us uh, by Luke. Uh, it's very carefully laid out for us. Uh, there, there, are, there are corresponding passages in, in John chapter 18, in Mark chapter 14, in Matthew chapter 26, where there are other trials, there are additional statements made, other uh, first uh, person observers have recorded other statements given to Matthew, Mark, and John. Uh, but here, Luke has recorded this for you and for me to be first and foremost an example of how to deal with unjust complaints, how to respond when others come uh, against us, when we experience injustice, but also additionally to show us what our Savior did when, 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 when judged improperly and falsely. And how, in fact, we might increase in our love for him because we observe it. So let's talk about what we see here this morning. There are two scenes within our present passage, and I think really, uh, really three. Uh, initially, Matthew's gospel tells us, uh, and John affirms and Mark as well, that Jesus was initially in the home of Annas. Annas was a high priest. He was amongst the aristocratic religious uh, authorities of the day. And from Annas's family and Caiaphas, uh, they would be chosen by the Roman authorities. Uh, 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 they would be chosen for the role of high priest. And they were, they were opposed to the Roman occupation, but they could, they could work within the framework. And Annas first had Jesus in his home. And then he went immediately to Caiaphas's, who was the current high priest during that season of temple worship. Now, we see what's taking place here. And, and I want you to think about our judicial system here in America. A person is first assumed innocent until proven guilty, correct? And, and more than that, until the person is ultimately sentenced, no punishment for one's crimes can be meted out, especially by our police taking it upon themselves to mete out punishment according to the immediacy of their own judgment there on the scene. They are simply to take someone into, uh, in, 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 into, uh, I've lost the word. They are to take, in, into custody, pardon me, uh, and then they are to take him into the jail and then submit that individual, male or female, to the the, the magistrates for an assessment of their crime at which there will be uh, there, there will be subsequently a trial laid out and then evidence witnesses will be brought. Uh, none of that has taken place here. Jesus has simply been brought to Annas's home and then to Caiaphas's home and then subsequently on the next morning there is a meeting, a representative meeting of the Council of Elders. There are a lot of things that we'll review in a couple of moments that have not taken place yet uh, that Jesus had a right to as one who was accused. But let's remember who stands before Annas and Caiaphas. There, Jesus, the creator of the world, the, 
second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the great I Am. And we can't miss his statement to that effect later in the passage before us. But he is the one whose intercession and righteousness can atone for sin and bring peace with God. He is the one who stands before men who holds They hold themselves up as the arbiters of God's presence amongst mankind. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the great I Am, He is is explicitly stated, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the great shepherd. I am the bread. I am the water, the living water. I am the gate. He has explicitly stated that he himself is the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And he is standing before them, and they have the audacity to claim the name of the God, uh, the living God, and, and to hold Jesus on trial. They believe that they themselves are the arbiters of God's justice, that they are the representatives of God to men. And so Jesus goes in the first uh, in the first instance to the home of Annas and then to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high high priest. He is has hereditary succession. The the session the next morning is in informal gathering, perhaps as a representative group, not the entire Sanhedrin. Uh, they hold an immediate trial the very next morning. This cannot wait. <clears throat> they seek testimony. They're working to get testimonies from amongst men. Uh, Apparently there are contradictory statements given. Apparently there are not two witnesses, which is required, two witnesses of any heresy that must in fact be brought forth. They are not doing it. This is not really a trial. This is a gathering of individuals who have already asserted their own judgment beforehand, and now they are simply looking for the, the apparatus that affirms their judgment. Can you imagine going into a courtroom where there is an individual, this individual is brought forth, he is already being punished physically in your presence. There are no witnesses, and so one goes out into the street to find witnesses to come in. In other words, the judge, the judges on the bench, out of the jury, go out into the street to find witnesses themselves. Bring in those witnesses. Those witnesses are contradictory. And so they find two finally, and then they pass judgment in the moment before the trial, uh, before the jury has even been gathered, really. They've already arrived at a conclusion here. This is unjust in every possible way. They're seeking testimony of which they can find none and amongst whom they can't find agreement. There are evening trials. There are trials on the eve of the Sabbath, which is illegal. They're avoiding the crowds because they're avoiding their own law. And they are men who have used the word of God and the law of God to serve their own purposes. They are not in any way representing, representing God to the people and the people to God. Uh, these are spurious shepherds, men described by by Jude as waterless clouds driven along by the wind. Fruitless vines that are worthless and are to be burned up. Peter would say they're vapors, mists. They're not in any way representative of God, and yet they have seized that power for themselves. 
Well, surely we see, we understand that what Jesus is doing is he is fulfilling here what Isaiah 53 speaks of. Surely he has borne our griefs, he he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There is a great deal of injustice that is happening here. There are six places of examination in less than 24 hours. Maybe even 18 hours. There are arenas of questioning and examination of inquiry. Annas in John 18, uh, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. There must be a follow-up meeting of the the Sanhedrin at the third time post-Pilate. There's a tragedy of trumped-up circumstances, of charges and situations. There's no justice that takes place here. The point is we would do well to consider that men who are religious leaders are depraved and unjust too. I read yesterday about a new, another pastor who had fallen morally in some way in his pastorate, and he had... He's just opened up a new uh, uh, return to ministry tour, he and his wife, uh, somewhere out in California. I I didn't know that individual ministers could proclaim themselves cured, healed, re-sanctified, re-enabled, recalled, and thus able fully to enter as a rehabilitated person back into public ministry. Uh, I believe that is best judged by our God and through the courts of the church. And yet, religious leaders of Jesus' day were ready to adjure Jesus in the name of the living God to come clean about whether or not he is the Messiah. And of course, he has been clear. He has been explicitly clear throughout the entirety of his ministry. There's only one conclusion that they can draw. And, of course, he affirms that he is, in fact, the Christ. And he he does that with their own words. But let's just speak to the injustice, first of all. There is a night meeting. This is a significant trial. It's against the law. They cannot hold a night meeting and a trial of, uh, of or, a, or a seeking of statement from the convict or from the uh, the implicated. It's not in the temple court, but it's in a private home away from the, uh, the crowds. Uh, there are not, trials are not permitted in private homes, but it must be public. The conviction is decided before the evidence is given. Uh, evidence is trumped up. They're, they're creating a false evidence uh, affirmed by men whom they know to be false. There's no representation for Jesus. There is no defense offered up for him. No one to, 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 to defend him. There is forced testimony under oath, no corroborating testimonies, direct questioning under oath by the prosecutor and the judge, which is not uh, the judge's privilege. 
There is a private agenda of the high priest. It's a Roman appointed position. He has an interest in, in, in finding Jesus guilty. He should recuse himself. There is a day that must intervene between the conviction and the sentence of punishment by law. They do not observe that. There's an execution demanded at the time of, of a significant religious, religious feast. Um, this is what they are asking for, and this is not permitted. They want him to be put to death immediately. Uh, they are forcing him to self-incriminate. They are forcing him to speak. They are yelling ec- ec- uh, ecstatically at him. They are hysterical, really. There is physical abuse and debasement under the subject who is merely under inquiry. He has not been sentenced. They are already persecuting him. They blindfold him. They strike him. If you are really a prophet, tell us who just struck you. And of course, Jesus knows precisely the thoughts and the intents of the heart of all who have struck him. They are torturing him and ridiculing him, and this before he has been charged or sentenced. Those who were called to judge take up the role of prosecutor and begin to prosecute him then and there. Uh, It is only their role to judge. And yet Jesus is silent. Jesus gives a purposeful submission to them and is silent before them in direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and in direct fulfillment of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is that glorious psalm where he commits himself into the hands of his faithful father. Jesus also has before in the text of Matthew chapter 7 verse 6, do not cast pearls before swine. He understands his place and he understands his role in that Isaiah 53 role to stand in our place. And this is his will, to do his Father's will. And it pleased God the Father to crush him for it. The truth is that Jesus stood in this position of submission and did not reply in kind nor revile them, even the men who were ridiculing him, because of his infinite and eternal love for all those who are his. He loves. And the truth is that even amongst the members of the Sanhedrin and the elders and the chief priests and and of the high priest's families, and even of those who are amongst the Romans, there are many who will believe in him. Think of that. There are many who are ridiculing him, torturing and, and striking him, even there, who would in subsequent days, under the preaching of the apostles and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who would believe and be saved. 3,000 are added to the church's number on one day while they're preaching in Jerusalem. 5,000 on another day. Thousands upon thousands are streaming into the church and the household of God. Many of whom reviled the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of whom stood at the last day and cried out for persecution and for Barabbas instead of Jesus and cried out for crucifixion of the Savior. Glorious love of Jesus Christ is on display. His willingness to die for you. And if this doesn't move us to believe in him and to trust in him, what will? What will move us to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If not this, in our observation of him, as he is there 
being unjustly treated, experiencing more mistreatment, more injustice than any other human being has ever experienced. And he did it all for love. Love of the Father, love of all who would trust in him, love of all who have been given to him of the Father, love of all who would believe and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have blindfolded him. They have, they are beating him. They are saying many things against him. They are blaspheming him. That's all on the night before. That's the fun of the evening before they finally bring him the next morning. Uh, you remember there's a day that, 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 that must intervene between sentencing or between accusation and then the trial itself. Council of Elders meets the very next morning. It's a matter of hours. It's not ten hours that that, that 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 unfold, and they meet. It's the Council of Elders seems to be a smaller representation of the fuller, wider body, the Sanhedrin, the Council of Elders, together with the chief priests and the scribes. And they are there, and they let, lead him away to the council chamber, and they tell him, and they they demand that he self-incriminate. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he says to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. There is an extraordinary judgment there. If I tell you, you will not believe. Even if I tell you, I am the Christ of God. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. I am the one in counsel in Psalm 2. I am the one whom in Psalm 22, the the eternal God says, come and sit at my right hand. I am the one of Psalm 110. I am the one in fulfillment of every Old Testament text from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 all the way to the end. I am the one. And yet Jesus knows that they will not believe. They have refused. Their hearts are hard and they have refused the Savior. And so he says this, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, this is Daniel 7 on display. And what he does is he takes a passage from Daniel 7, where there is the ancient of days and the son of man and 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 the glorious uh, re- regaling joy of heaven itself and lifting up the Son of Man who is invited to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus explicitly states, as he records this passage for them, brings it to their understanding, but from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. There's a warning inherent in that statement. I am the Son of Man, and I am going to sit in power at the right hand of God the Father soon. And there is an encouragement for all of his people. This one whom you see suffering, being unjustly treated, will sit at the right hand of God the Father in power on high. And he lives and he reigns even today. Notice what they say. There is a differentiation between what he has said and what they say. He has said, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, there are some amongst the liberal Christians of today and amongst liberal theologians who say, Jesus as a person 
never claimed to be the Son of God, never claimed divinity, never claimed to be the Messiah and the servant in fulfillment of all the servant songs of Isaiah 42 and 49 and 51 and 52 and 53. They say, no, he never claimed messianic role. However, Jesus has just said the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God, explicitly in fulfillment as to his calling. And they all said, are you then the Son of God? They have understood and they are, they are, they are self-implicating. Do you see? What he has just said is, 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 is a, a clear statement about himself. I am the Son of Man who will be seated at the right hand of God the Father. In direct fulfillment of Daniel 7. They, understanding explicitly what he's saying, he is claiming to be the Messiah, he is claiming divinity, he is claiming to be the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And so they ask him, are you the Son of God then? They know that this is what he is claiming. Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. He is claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ of God. There is no question about that. And they themselves affirm it by their answer to him. Don't believe it when liberal folk tell you Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. I believe J. Gresham Machem is right in his statement that liberal theologians look down deep into the well to find Jesus and what they see is their own face looking back at them. There is a messianic complex present within themselves. And thus they deny the Lord. They should not be listened to. These Jewish leaders, they knew that he was claiming to be the son of God, that none less than the son of God could sit at the right hand of God, the father. And he said to them, And I know in our English Bibles, it really doesn't quite come through. Yes, I am. It is an emphatic statement. It is a clear statement. He is essentially saying, you could not have said something more true. You could not have with your own lips said it more clearly. Yes, you are so very right. And so Jesus says, yes, I am. They, incensed, having prejudged, they say, what further need do we have of testimony? In other words, we don't even need witnesses. This has worked out beautifully. We don't need anyone to tell us that this man is a heretic. He has claimed this himself. In other words, they have come to the conclusion that he has claimed to be the Son of God. And that is the claim that Jesus has made. That is what his life explicitly declares. And that is what you must believe. That is what I must believe. If we believe that he is the Son of God, if we believe that he is the Christ of God, then we have life, and we have life in his name. If we do not believe, and we say all sorts of wonderful things about Jesus, We do not have life, and the life is not in us. We are lost and damned. 
Well, in the preceding melee, and there is one, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. The next chapter and the next verse. It's in direct fulfillment to Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. None but the Son of God, none but the Son of God could endure suffering. And nothing can motivate the Son of God more than his love for the Father and his love for you and for me. So what can we take from this passage at the very least to see what Jesus has endured for you and for me? Are we not motivated to love him all that much more by virtue of his representation of his own love in the midst of difficult, overwhelming circumstances that would be a grave discouragement to any of us? We, we talk about our rights. We complain about our rights. We are ready to defend ourselves even at the least provocation. We have spoken in the last few years and our society and culture has proclaimed that we are, we are an unjust society, even though this is one of the most just nations on the face of the earth. Not perfect. An imperfect nation. One rapidly leading God, leaving God behind. One rapidly leaving itself open to God's judgment by virtue of its embrace of immorality and filth. But it remains to be true that this is one of the most just societies with the most just legal systems in all the earth. There are injustices. There are imperfections. There are unjust persons who fulfill places of judicial significance. And yet, We've heard a great deal about the injustices that have faced us as a nation, particularly people groups, various people groups, over which, frankly, our our human sins and our failures, our embrace of injustice should be wept over, repented of, brought to God for payment, brought to the cross of Jesus Christ and left there. We should be laboring deeply and quickly, rapidly, with all our heart and soul for, for, for reconciliation together in Christ Jesus. We should be working for reconciliation. We should be working for common faith and a common goal of serving our fellow man and loving one another with the love which Christ has put on display. And yet, I don't hear anyone complaining about the injustice that Jesus endured. We don't very we don't hear a great deal about what Christ has endured for sinners' sake. We hear very little from our liberal preachers about the endurance of the wrath of God by the Son of God. But it should be our great motivation in our increasing in the love of Jesus Christ, that that as we, we dwell and as we think and as we thank the Lord, as we pray and we give thanks to Jesus for what he has endured for us, for me, for you, 
in our daily devotion and prayer. And yes, this, this should be readily coming to our, to our recognition and remembrance that as we sink in prayer and as we worship the Lord and as we make our requests known unto God, we should also surely give thanks with tears, with heartfelt devotion. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has endured for you and for me. The mistreatment Jesus endured, the injustice Jesus endured, he endured for you. The loss of his rights and the giving up of his rights were for you and for me. His silence before those who would cut him off out of the land of the living was for you and it was for me. He endured the wrath of God, the hatred of sinners for the sake of redeeming the lost. The mistreatment he endured, he endured for you. But also he has shown us how to handle mistreatment, a loss of our own rights and indignities. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and following. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. He's speaking about suffering. The Apostle Peter is speaking about suffering and enduring in the midst of suffering. He is speaking to a people who are enduring suffering from the authorities of their day. And we are coming, I'm certain of it, at some point in the course of our lives to a day when no longer will Christian principles be, be tolerated in civil society. We already see it. And despite that day which is coming, we have an example to follow. And that's what Peter says. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. In other words, Peter says, what you see Jesus doing in enduring the wrath of God and enduring the loss of his own rights and enduring suffering at the hands of wicked men This is his example to you for you to follow. And Jesus was mindful of that very thing on that evening and the subsequent next morning recorded here in Luke's gospel. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he suffered no, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now, this is not to say that you as an American citizen have no right to your common defense. That if you are accused of something of which you did not do, that you have no right to to, to raise your voice in defense of yourself. You have every right. You have a right to hire a legal representation and to, to contest your case. But let's say you are treated unjustly in other ways, where there is no legal system to help you. Recently, there was a woman who's a believer and she uh, was in Michigan and it was uh, she was commanded to begin affirming and defending as well as recommending uh, uh, a complete bodily transformation for those who are gender confused amongst young children. And she, as a Christian woman, could not in good conscience support that. And she had a religious exemption and her employer eventually decided that she would no longer have that religious exemption and so they fired her. More and more as Christians we will see such things taking place in our world. So what example do we have to follow? 
She has a right to a legal defense, but at the same time, she ought to keep her mouth shut and be very, very careful about how she speaks publicly. I'm not saying that she has no right to say anything. She has every right to speak up and amongst the media and to, to give a, a, a reasonable understanding of why she did what she did. But she also has to be very, very careful about criticizing and being critical of and, and being retributive in the ways in which she interacts. She has a right to, to speak the truth, as Jesus did here, as to who she is and he as to who he was. But he did not revile. He did not revile in turn when he was reviled. He suffered and he uttered no threats. And so she should not utter threats. She should not revile. But she should also, as Jesus did, keep entrusting herself to him who judges righteously. The truth is, even that our, even amongst our, our judicial system, we may not be treated correctly. We may not be treated right. Sometimes there are people who are put into prison who are not guilty. Not guilty because, it not, and I'm not saying that not because of a technicality. A technicality wasn't observed or something like that, but rather who are genuinely not guilty. There are some. So our ultimate hope is not in threatening or reviling others or deceiving others or speaking something that isn't true, but to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, to be careful, salty in our speech in the best way, and to commit ourselves to him who judges righteously, our God who knows the truth. He is our example when we suffer and when we are unjustly accused of something. Let's say in the court of public opinion, someone has judged you because you have spoken up at work or you have simply lived a quiet, godly life. Many years ago, as a Christian working in a large company, uh, there were men who were under me who uh, mistreated me in ways that were tolerable, that were not before my face, but were explicit and Uh, very uh, antagonistic. And I experienced that because I'm a believer and because I didn't talk like they did, because I didn't look at what they looked at, because I wouldn't go where they went. Do I drag them into court? Do I revile them in turn? Do I ridicule them? Do I tear them to pieces? Offer up a defense of myself in the workroom? No. Follow the example of Christ and entrust myself to him who judges righteously. Lastly, and in conclusion, we have an obligation to give thanks to God that we have believed. Here are these men, these religious authorities of Jesus' day, and even though Jesus says in an audible voice, in the most glorious way, as one who is suffering innocently, who is beautiful beyond description because he is the Son of God and the Savior of mankind. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega and he is sitting silently as a lamb before its shearers. They ridiculing, hitting, spitting him or spitting upon him. And he simply says, yes, I am the Son of God. You have said it. You have said it. Why is it that they do not believe 
and they cannot see the beauty of Jesus Christ, but I can, and you can. Why is it that you believe in Jesus Christ when these religious authorities who knew the Old Testament scriptures better than you and me, how is it that they did not believe, but you and I do? Because God in his infinite mercy has had has poured his grace into your heart, has replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh and granted you eternal life in common confession in the Lord Jesus Christ. To you it has been given that you should hear the claims of Christ and you should believe that he is the Messiah sent from the Father. And you see and you know that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and this is your hope. That of all that you suffer in this world, and all that you that besets your flesh and besets your mind and breaks your heart, all of it your heavenly Father will one day make right. And your faith will be affirmed, and Jesus in whom you believed, and in, with whom you have endured, you will see him and you will behold him face to face. That is our hope. And God, who is the Father and who sees all things and who is able to just, uh, justly judge all things rightly on the last day, will do so according to his righteousness. May we hope eternally in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give thanks to you for your infinite mercy in Christ Jesus. And we confess that we have, there were days when we looked at the claims of Christ and did not believe for some of us. And there were days when we have, uh, even for others of us, have doubted, who have wondered about the claims of Christ or who have lived innocently and or ignorantly of the claims of Christ for numbers of days and only have come to greater conviction as we have grown and matured and come to the understanding that surely Jesus is the Son of God. Lord, lead every heart, great and small, to this fundamental truth that Jesus was and is and remains the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the Messiah sent from God to take away our sins and to reconcile us to God. We give thanks to you for your work of grace and ask that you might work greater faith in our heart. We pray that you would help us to look to the days of our suffering and willingly in each and every moment of pain and of tears of discouragement and of brokenheartedness to give ourselves into the faithful hands of our Creator, to He who will judge righteously in the last day. We are thankful, O God, for that recompense, for that refuge. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.